You remember the first time you got in trouble as a kid, like really got in trouble with your parents? Um, I, I, you know, I, I was a pretty well-behaved kid, but I definitely did my fair share of stupid stuff and got in trouble for it. Um, I was trying to think of some examples this past week of things I did that got me in trouble with my parents, and um, there were a number of things I could have shared, but one I decided to share, I think I was nine or ten, there, we had this big spool of string. I don't even know what it was for. It was like this giant, it was like for a kite or something, but it was huge. And I, I don't know why, but I decided that my little brother, Sean, who's three years younger than me, could use some redecorating in his room. So I went in there and I tied one end of the string to the inside doorknob. And then I proceeded to wrap it around like everything I could find in the room, the ceiling fan, his bunk beds, his desk, his chair. I created this immensely dense like spider web like no one could get in or out of his room it was like a work of art but I definitely got in trouble for that one but that's just one of many examples but I think when I look back on my life when I was a kid um, getting in trouble for things with my parents was I think my kind of first exposure to the idea of a contradiction because it was this paradox, and you know, you're four or five years old, of, you know, your parents love you, and also they're willing to punish you, and that just doesn't quite add up in a kid's mind, Uh, you know, I'm doing this because I love you, parents will say, which has never comforted any kid ever, (laughs) I'm doing this because I love you, okay, and then, you know, ultimately, you just have to land on, you're going to understand when you're older, which also isn't comforting to the kid, but does become true, because now I am older, and I have kids, and I'm like, I totally understand all of that, Um, and I say the same kinds of things to my son, Luke, all the time, Uh, but this idea of uh, the fact that your parents love you, but they are also willing to to punish you, um, it's just sort of beyond a kid's ability to grasp that both of those things can be true, uh, at the same time, that the fact that you're being punished or disciplined or have consequences or whatever, that that doesn't in any way take away from the fact that they love you. Those two things can simultaneously be true. And I think in the same way, uh, a lot of the way we think about God doesn't quite neatly add up. Uh, there are things about him that kind of almost seem contradictory. Like, how can these two things be true uh, about God? And and. The fact is we're not ever fully going to understand some of those things in this life. For example, when Jesus was walking around on the earth, he was fully God and fully human at the same time. He wasn't like half God and half human. He's fully both. And that's like, okay, we can understand sort of what that means, but that's a huge concept we don't fully understand. Also, when it comes to our salvation, salvation is clearly presented throughout Scripture as a free will choice. We're placing our trust in Jesus for our salvation, yet it also says that in God's sovereign plan, we are predestined to faith, that it's some mysterious combination of God's uh, sovereignty and our free will choice, and that is something that is simply beyond us to fully understand. And then we saw last week as we got into uh, this series, the book of Hosea, the fact that God's love and his justice are not mutually exclusive. Both things are true at the same time about him. He absolutely loves us, and he is absolutely willing to punish sin, to execute his justice on the earth. And those two things are both true. And we have to kind of grapple with that tension a little bit and ask the Lord to help us understand this. But I think one of the hardest concepts for us to get our head around 
is, in terms of a seeming contradiction, is that God is present with us even when life is really painful. That just doesn't quite make sense for us or add up, I think. It, it kind of seems like, okay, if God loves me and he's close to me, he's going to protect me, right? I mean, that just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? He's going to prevent pain from happening. You know, it, or it, we kind of think the other way, you know, if things are going badly in our life, you know, God, he's like, I don't know, he's out to lunch. He's on an errand. His phone's on silent. He's not, you know, he's absent if things are going poorly in our life. We find ourselves thinking that sometimes overtly. Sometimes we don't realize we're thinking that, but we are. We find ourselves just feeling kind of um, estranged from God, and something like this is kind of at the root of that. We think if things are going poorly or I'm struggling, like God's kind of not doing his job. He's not around. Um, because we think, you know, if you're around, if he cared for me, if he was listening, why, <laughs> why would he let this happen? We find ourselves struggling with these things. But throughout Scripture, we constantly see over and over that God's presence with his people, it, it's true in both good times and in times of suffering. Um, I think the Psalms are a quintessential example of this. You see this over and over and over, that, God, that, that our suffering and God's presence can both be true simultaneously. Psalm 23 is probably the most classic example of this. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the darkest valley... I will fear no evil, for you are with me, even though I walk through the darkest valley. The mere existence of a dark valley doesn't mean God is not with you. The fact that you're walking through it doesn't mean God is distant. He is with you in the valley. So there can be dark valleys, and God can love you and be present with you. But that in our minds, just sort of like kids not understanding how their parents can love them and discipline them, I think we kind of have that same sort of just, uh, it's, it has a kind of a mysterious element to it. We don't fully understand it. Um, but today we're going to continue this series on the minor prophets. We're going to get into the book of Joel. Joel is three chapters, and it speaks to two subjects that feel a little bit contradictory. God's loving presence and also his unyielding punishment of sin. Those two things. God's loving presence and his unyielding punishment of sin. His willingness to judge and also his deep desire for our rescue and restoration. We see both of those on display at the same time in the book of Joel. Now, I'm going to be honest. Some of what we're going to read today will probably make you uncomfortable. It will disrupt whatever convenient notions you have about God where everything lines up neatly and he fits in the little box that you've given him to fit inside, Joel will not let you hang on to that image of God. And depending on where you stand with God, uh, the message of Joel, as he talks about the Lord, God can be just the deepest well of hope, but also a source of dread. Now, that's not a word we like to use about God, but it's here. And we need to talk about it. And so if you feel challenged or pushed or prodded or agitated a little bit by the book of Joel, you know, you're getting a, a firsthand experience with the voice of the prophets. Because this is exactly what they did. We mentioned last week the fundamental role of the ancient prophets was this. Uh, the ancient prophets spoke for God. That is what they did. They were representative of God to speak to his people. 
They reminded people of who God is, disrupted their convenient ideas of who God is. Uh, they, prophets reminded people of who they are, God's desires for them. They would call people to repentance. They would rebuke people for the ways that they've turned away from God, remind people of God's love for them. They made a lot of people uncomfortable. The prophets were not very popular at the time. And their ancient words are still living and active for us in our life, and they have the same effect on us. And God will use their words to grow us in our understanding of who he is and deepen our relationship with him if, as Jesus said, if we have ears to hear. So let's get into it. Let's get into Joel. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the layout of the Bible, Joel is uh, in the Old Testament. It's after Hosea and before the book of Amos. So go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, We encourage people uh, here to bring your Bibles. We dive into God's word together. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on your tables. You're welcome to take one of those home and keep it. We would love that uh, to be our gift to you. Um, So we're going to get into Joel. We're not going to be able to read all of it. So we're going to kind of go through it and look at some representative sections that really get at the heart of the, the, the message of Joel, the overall message. So let's start Joel 1. And we'll just do a few verses here to start off. Joel 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. And then if you're taking notes, I want you to highlight this next question. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, highlight locust swarm. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Okay, let's talk about what's happening in this introduction to Joel. Uh, First of all, we don't know exactly when Joel lived. Biblical commentators debate a little bit about that. But as we talked about last week, all of the ancient Israelite prophets lived basically in the 800s to 400s BC. So Joel lived sometime during this era, uh, so centuries before the life of Christ. And um, uh, the Israelites had experienced a devastating natural disaster. And it was more catastrophic than anything in recent memory. That's why Joel saying, can any of you remember anything like this happening? Um, I think what they were feeling, the Israelites were feeling, was very similar to what we felt in this city after Hurricane Harvey. I mean, it was just so overwhelmingly awful. It's like you couldn't even process it. Uh, For them, it wasn't a hurricane. It was this locust swarm. Um, And actually, when Joel's talking about it there, uh, it's not like a metaphor. It it actually happened. This is a real locust swarm. It's common in Israel. Um, When they descend on an area, they can decimate crops for miles around And it'll take two or three years for those crops to recover when the locusts are done with them. And uh, this apparently was such a bad one that Joel is saying, can you guys ever remember anything like this happening? We're going to be telling our grandkids about this. It was so bad. I actually have a picture. This is an actual locust swarm in 2013 in Israel. They can get so dense that they will literally black out the sun. And there will be millions of them. And they just take everything. They just strip everything off of the crops, off of the trees. They just lay waste when they, when they come in, into an area. And uh, 
So, so this has happened in Israel, and, and Joel is talking about this, and, and he's capturing not just the economic impact of, you know, in agricultural society of what this did to the crops, but also the emotional toll of this. Look in verse 11. Skip ahead to 111. Just read two verses here. Joel says, uh, Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. And then highlight this remarkable phrase. Surely the people's joy is withered away. This was devastating, economically and emotionally. It was a natural disaster, but it was really kind of a national disaster too because the the full economy would have been impacted. The fruit was withering on the vine. People's joy was withering as... Joel said, and, and they're just grappling with this. Like, what, what are we supposed to do? Like, what does this mean for our relationship with God? Is this like a message? People are just struggling with it. And, and what happens next in Joel is he pivots from what actually happened, the disaster. He pivots to something that's going to happen in the future because there's an analogy in this locust swarm for something that's going to happen in the future. And so he's going to tell us about this, uh, starting in verse 14. Joel says, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. Highlight the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. So we'll stop there. So, the day of the Lord is, is something that's spoken about throughout the Old Testament. It's spoken about in the New Testament. Jesus spoke about it. it it's, it's the day that God will judge the earth, everybody, for their sins. And he will bring about justice and restore everything to the way it should be. It's going to happen. And Joel is speaking about this. The day of the Lord is near. And, and he, he's telling us there's an analogy with this locust swarm. And basically what it is, is that God's justice is complete. It is relentless. It is going to, it is going to take over everything. Like it's going to visit everyone. No one is going to avoid ultimately God's justice on the earth and the restoration of what he designed the world to be free of sin. It's going, it's going to be all encompassing. It's going to be every bit is comprehensive as what you just saw happen with this locust swarm. And by the way, the Israelites were dealing with more than just uh, the locusts. Verse 19, uh, he says this, To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. So, he, he's saying uh, the streams of water have dried up. I would highlight that if you're taking notes. It's a drought too. I mean, it's just like a really rough time in Israel right now. But Joel gives us a clue in what we just read on how to respond when we're experiencing a personal crisis or a family struggle or there's sort of a global catastrophe. The very first words of that, he says, to you, Lord, I call. To you, Lord, I call. I would highlight those. You know, he doesn't see disaster and think God's not there or he doesn't care. He turns toward God 
in a difficult situation. And what a lesson for us. Because our initial inclination, anytime we suffer, is to go, you know, and step away from God. But he's saying, to you, Lord, I call in this desperate moment. So chapter one ends on a kind of a bleak note. You know, this awful disaster has happened and they're processing all this. And Joel has this message from the Lord about this catastrophe. And it's not, oh, don't worry, the crops are going to grow back tomorrow. It's, you know what this is uh, an analogy of? The day of the Lord that's going to come one day and how it's going to just be total. And it's going to visit everyone. And so, I mean, that's, that's a heavy message. But praise God for chapter 2. That's not the end of the story. So let's keep reading Joel 2. It gets, it's a beautiful passage coming up here. Joel 2, 1 says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Highlight that again, the day of the Lord. It's the second time we've seen it here. It is close at hand. Now I want you to skip down to verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Highlight that. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Highlight that. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity those qualities that just, I would highlight those. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. So Joel is saying here, you know, the day of the Lord is coming, but God's desire is that we would be spared any punishment when that day comes. He's saying, return to me with your whole heart. Because we see this throughout scripture from beginning to end. God is always calling us home. We are never too far gone, no matter how far we stray, no matter how far we turn our backs on God or pretend he's not there, no matter how much we indulge our sinful inclinations or our judgmental hearts, God wants us to come back. And he elaborates on what this looks like. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. It, it's a, it's a, an evocative image because in ancient Israelite culture, to tear your shirt was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of grief. And God's saying, I'm not interested in your public uh, token displays of repentance. I'm not interested in that. I don't want you to go through the motions on this. I really want you to come back to me with your whole heart. I want you to rend your heart, he says. I want you to genuinely repent. That means turn from your own path that you're on and turn back toward the Lord. He's saying, I want you to genuinely turn back toward me. I want to sense that you have an awareness of your need for me. I want to know that you actually care about our relationship, that you're, you're actually affected by the distance that's between us. Show me you really care about the fact that we've been alienated by your sin. God is saying all of this. This is the kind, this is what I want from you. I don't want some show. I want you to really, with your whole heart, come back to me. We saw this last week in Hosea. God actually cares deeply when we are estranged from him in one way or another. He's not, he doesn't offer a relationship to us as some favor. Like, hey, it'd be good for you if you had a relationship with me, but I'm like, whatever, if you don't. He cares deeply. He's grieved 
when we are, are, are distant from him or broken in our relationship with him. And, and so he's saying, come back to me with your whole heart. Rend your heart. Come back to me. And then we see in verse 13, Joel tells us what kind of God we find when we go back to him. He's gracious, which means he doesn't treat us based on what we deserve. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He understands. He's slow to anger. He can be angry, but he's slow to it. And he's abounding in love. By the way, these are qualities Joel didn't make up. Uh, When God first introduced himself to the Israelites in the book of Exodus, um, when God appears to Moses and says, you're going to lead my people out of slavery, God introduces himself this way and says, I am gracious, I am compassionate, I am slow to anger, I am abounding in love. This is God's identity that he himself gave himself and communicated to us. And Joel is just repeating this. This is who God is. This is his nature, his character. And so in the midst of this natural disaster that Israel is facing, when they're grappling with all sorts of tough questions, Joel points to the future and he says, God's justice, his judgment is coming. Turn toward him. If he isn't Lord of your life, turn toward him. And you know who you're going to find? A gracious God, a loving God, a compassionate God who's been waiting for you to come home. And Joel, as you keep reading, he continues to speak about the future Uh, starting in verse 28, 228. He says this, Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Highlight that. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, highlight this again, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And, and then highlight this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel is saying a new era is coming when God's spirit will not be limited to, you know, just in the temple or, you know, given temporarily to a prophet here or there or a priest. No, his spirit is going to be poured out and available to everyone. Uh, Theologians call this the democratizing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes available to everyone. That is going to happen, Joel is saying. God will be intimately present with his people like never before. This is going to happen in the future, Joel says. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we're getting this picture of the day of the Lord. It's, you know, it's the hope of God's presence and this loving God who wants us to come home placed right side by side by his justice and judgment that also will happen. And so this is this moment where you have to understand, you know, what is God like? Both of these things are true. And uh, I want to read to you what one commentator said about this section. I just thought really summed it up uh, nicely. This is Stuart Briscoe. He said, At the same time Joel makes his solemn proclamation about the day of the Lord, he makes a statement of hope. As God's people return to him with broken hearts and acknowledge him as Lord, he pours out his spirit. As he pours out his spirit in their lives, they begin to speak and live the truth of God in a confused, 
society. And as they do that, men and women hear the message, turn to the Lord, call on him, and innumerable companies of people are saved. What a marvelous message of hope that is. And as you keep reading Joel in chapter 3, you see these similar themes of warning, but also rescue, restoration, but also judgment, all side by side. But I want to skip now to the New Testament because we're going to get to see what Joel prophesied would happen actually happen. And, and, and we see this throughout the prophets that um, this, this key idea that the prophets point to our need for Jesus. So they point to. They, sometimes they point directly to Jesus. They talk about someone who's going to come one day. But, but even if they don't specifically talk about him, they, they point out this glaring need for rescue and that we could never rescue ourselves. So all of the prophets are laying the groundwork for Jesus one way or the other. And so I want to read now a little bit from the New Testament because we're going to see how Joel connects uh, to it. So we're going to read in the book of Acts. The book of Acts chronicles the first 30 years after Jesus's life. And we're going to see Joel's prophecy come true. Jesus had risen from the dead and he told his disciples, I'm going to ascend into heaven soon and the Holy Spirit's going to come. And it's better that I go because the Holy Spirit's going to do some amazing things uh, once I go. And so all the disciples are hanging out together one day. And in Acts 2, we read about how uh, the Holy Spirit fills the disciples for the first time. And it's this unbelievable moment where they begin speaking all these languages that they did not know how to speak. And all these people are watching going, what is with these people? Are they drunk? And Peter, Jesus's lead disciple, stands up and gives this powerful message about what is happening. This is the very first sermon that Peter gave after Jesus's death and resurrection. And he talks about Joel. So let's read. I'm going to read what Peter said. Um, I'll just put it on the screen. You can follow along there. It says this, starting in verse 14 of Acts 2. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, and here he's quoting Joel, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now Peter resumes speaking. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. And here it is. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So God had promised through the prophet Joel centuries earlier that one day he would pour out his spirit onto everyone, make himself available to everyone. And Jesus said, this is about to happen. And then it happened. And the Holy Spirit has been fueling the growth and expansion of his church ever since. And if you place your faith in Christ, you literally have God dwelling in in you, through the Holy Spirit. This is what Scripture teaches. It's this unfathomable gift. It did not used to be that way. But God gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit and this promise of of God's presence with you, the Holy Spirit. You know who it's for? I love the way Peter put this. It's for all who are far off. It's not for the religiously impressive or people who deserve it. It's people who are far off for whatever reason, God says, I want to be intimately present with you and I'm going to make myself available to you. Maybe you feel far from God today or wonder if he's far. You know, if you place your trust in Christ for salvation, if you ask for forgiveness of your sins, if you come to him with your whole heart, as Joel said, if you rend your heart and come to him and and, and genuinely uh, say, Lord, I want to be with you. I want to be close to you. I realize I do all this stuff to put distance between us. Would you heal me? Would you restore me? Draw me close. If you do all of that, you're saved, Scripture says. It's, It's your faith. It's not anything you've done to earn it. It's a gift of God, your salvation. And the Holy Spirit comes into your life, indwells you, And you never have to wonder if God is with you. You know, we Christians, and I I do this a lot, you know, pray things like, you know, God, would you please be with us? We really, if we understand the promise of the Holy Spirit, we should really never pray that. Because he is with us all the time. He literally indwells us. We are not at risk of losing his presence if we've been saved by Christ. And so no matter what you're going through in life, if you're going through a dark valley, it won't lead you to thinking God is far away because you know he is literally dwelling within you through his Holy Spirit. He could not be closer to you. Even the day of the Lord that Joel spoke about, this day where God is going to bring his justice on the earth and restore everything as it was meant to be, you don't have to fear that if you've been saved by Christ. You don't, that doesn't have to be a day, as Joel talked about, this day of reckoning. It doesn't need to feel that way for you because Christ's sacrifice on the cross has been applied to you and your entire debt of sin has been paid for. And this day of the Lord that Joel spoke about doesn't have to cause fear or anxiety or worry. In fact, we should feel something quite different about that day. Um... And Peter, a little later in his life, a couple decades after that first message that we just read in Acts 2, he wrote a letter to some Christians who were struggling in their faith. And he spoke about the day of the Lord and how we should feel about it. And I want to read that to you. It's in 2 Peter 3. Uh, If you have your Bible, turn there because I want to actually 
kind of look at it closely. Second Peter's back here uh, it, toward the end of the New Testament. It follows First Peter, so kind of goes in order. Um, if you hit First John, you've gone too far. So this is a letter Peter wrote uh, to a church that was struggling with all kinds of things, struggling in their faith, wondering about the future, the same kinds of things we struggle with. Peter wrote this letter to them. He may, may as well have written it to us. And in God's sovereignty, it was written to us because it's come down to us in his word. So let's read these words as if Peter is speaking directly to us. He says this, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, I want to highlight this question. What kind of people ought you to be? What a question. And then he goes on to say, you ought to live holy and godly lives. Get this, as you look forward to the day of God. Highlight those words, look forward. As you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are, there it is again, highlight it, looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are, here's the third time, highlight it again, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And then I would highlight this final phrase, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. What a different perspective on the day of the Lord. In Joel, if, if you just had Joel, it would be like, man, this is just something we just need to be afraid of. Like God's justice is coming. We better run and hide. And here Peter says, no, no, no. That's not what it's supposed to be about. You can look forward to that day with joy if you're in Christ, not dread. And we as God's people should be looking forward to it because that is the moment when we will be brought back into the perfect relationship with God that we were designed to have, a, a life in relationship with God that is not polluted by sin or confusion or pain or age or illness or death, none of that stuff getting in the way, restored to what he always wanted it to be. That's what the day of the Lord means to people who know Christ. And so we should live, as Peter says, how ought we to live? Live as a reflection of this. Live uh, in such a way that we, we live out the fact that God has loved us. We love others in the way that God has loved us. We honor him with our life. And all of this is made possible because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. You know, we sang about this earlier. Jesus, he changes everything. He changes the game. And Joel was in part pointing forward to that and saying, this day is going to come when God is personally present, intimately present with each of you in a way he's never been before. And the result of that is this day of the Lord, as much as it is going to be about God's justice, there will be no fear because you'll know the Lord and you will have been saved and you will have no debt to pay. God's spirit through Christ has been poured out into us. Joel 
prophesied this, it came true. And if you're in Christ, you can know that God is with you. He's in you. He's never going to leave you. And he is always going to love you. No matter what valley you're in, those are true. Those things are true. So I want to leave you with just a couple of questions to think about, reflect on uh, this week. Here's the first. In what ways do you need to rend your heart, as Joel said? When we go our own way, walk away from the Lord, or just pursue our own agendas, uh, indulge our sinful inclinations, God's waiting for us to come back. And he's waiting for us to repent, to turn toward him. And we find him to be gracious and compassionate and loving. But he's not interested again in our just sort of shows of, of uh, remorse just because we think we're supposed to. He, he really cares what's in our heart. That's, that's what it's all about. He really cares what's in here. And he really cares that we come back in, into a reconciled relationship with him. So in what ways do you need to rend your heart? Maybe you've never come to God in the first place and admitted your need for him and, and said, Lord, I need you to forgive me. I can't deal with my sin on my own. Would you please come into my life? Save me. I place my trust in you. And if you're feeling any sort of nudge to do that or desire to do that, that's the Holy Spirit working on you. That's, that's God saying, come to me. If you're weary and need rest, here I am. And maybe you've been a believer for many years or your whole life or as long as you can remember, but you're really not living life in a way that honors the Lord. You're kind of doing your own thing and, you know, just sort of God's there, you know, to punch your ticket to heaven and that's really all there is to it in your relationship. Um, You might need to rend your heart too and come to the Lord and say, I've taken you for granted and uh, I have some things I need to leave behind in my life. I don't know exactly how to do that, but Lord, can you please do this in and through me and bring me back into the relationship with you that that you want me to have? We all need to rend our hearts in some way. So just ask God. Ask for his guidance. Here's a second thing I would encourage you to reflect on. Is there someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus? Is there someone in your world, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your life who has not heard this message, who doesn't know there's a God who loves them, who doesn't know that they were worth dying for, who doesn't know that there is a life of purpose and hope and joy beyond their imagination, and God has placed you in their life for a reason, to share that good news, to help them see that God's been waiting for them to come home. Peter said, God's patience means salvation. That means he's given us time to do this, uh, for ourselves to respond to him, but also to help others meet him and hear the good news. And so would you pray about that? Is there someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus? Maybe it's someone whose name you've put in this box that you've been praying for, um, who has not yet come into a saving relationship with Christ. And if you think of a person, ask God for guidance on how to talk to them about him. And usually it starts with your story. You know, you don't have to be a theologian for these conversations. You just talk about what God's done in your life and who God is. And, you know, I want, I want you to experience this too. And God's going to work through you. 
And then uh, one last point of application. I would encourage you to read Joel this week. It's three chapters. Just read it straight through. We've kind of introduced the themes, the big ideas today, but read it line by line. Reflect on it. And I would encourage you to read it with a, a kind of a childlike posture in the sense of what we talked about at the beginning, that there are things about God that aren't going to just neatly add up. There are going to be things that you think, how can this and this be true? But if you really want to know God as he is, you have to embrace those things that you don't quite understand and say, Lord, I I don't fully understand this, but I want to know you more. And I know these things are true about you. What does this mean for my life? Reading Joel with a childlike posture is to say, realize you're not going to understand everything about God and you realize his love and justice can go together without contradiction and you can trust him that he's good. He is loving. He is compassionate. He's gracious. So read Joel and pray and ask the Lord to speak to you. It's a challenging book, but it's full of hope. And uh, there are angles to who God is that really you only encounter in Joel. And so my prayer this week is going to be that as you read it, God speaks to you and shows uh, something of himself that maybe you haven't encountered before.